0: Welcome to Single Mom Mindset, the podcast, a place for choice moms, donor conceived people and non-traditional families. Now let's do this thing. Welcome back to the show today. I'm so freaking excited. We're going to be hearing from Suzanne, who is a genetic counselor at Fairfax Cryobank. She's been there for over 18 years, but she's been genetic counselor for that long. So she has all the information that we could possibly need. And I'm so freaking excited to hear from you. So thank you for being here, Suzanne.
1: You're welcome. Pleased to be here.
0: I'm so glad. Okay, so can you just first dive into what a genetic counselor does?
1: So genetic counselors are here to make complex things easier to understand genetics has really evolved a lot lately there's more testing available Um, there are genes being discovered every week and all this testing is kind of trickling down to people who are trying to plan families and we need to make informed choices so I help people understand what their options are um, what testing is available and what might be a good choice for them
0: Okay, awesome. Well, since we're on that, um, is there something that people can do? Let's say if you're trying to conceive a baby using a donor or donors and you don't do the genetic testing, because I know in different countries it seems to be different. But here in Canada, we don't have to do or we didn't when I conceived Leo. We didn't have to do genetic testing um, until you're actually pregnant. Um, Is that something that you are trying to make worldwide thing that genetic testing is done before to maybe avoid issues down the road is that something that should be done what is your recommendation like and i'm talking hetero couples i'm talking people that are like having their child together without donors or with donors should genetic testing be a first line thing that people are doing
1: Well, I agree with you that different countries have different approaches. Um, A lot of it depends on the availability of the testing in country. So, um, uh, you know, in the United States, there are several laboratories doing the testing, so it's more readily available. Ultimately, it comes down to what the client's choice is. I mean, this is never a mandated thing. These are things that should be offered and accepted or declined. Um, Ideally, this testing should be done before conception occurs because you want that information to plan, um, So doing it when you're pregnant can make things very confusing, especially when you find out you're a carrier in pregnancy. Now you don't know what the sperm source testing results are, and it makes for a lot of worry. So ideally, it should be done before a pregnancy. And the goal is really to reduce the risk of a child with a genetic disease. And You do that by getting your carrier results, finding out what genes you might be a carrier for. And then if you're a carrier, making sure that the sperm source is tested and negative. Because if you're both carriers for the same gene, there's a 25% risk of an affected child. That's what you want to avoid. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, testing is, you, you know, we test for hundreds of diseases now, but there are about 20,000 genes that make up a human being. So we're really just at the tip of the iceberg of what this testing can tell us. It doesn't give us a 100% guarantee of perfection. It can just simply help us reduce risk. Um, if you're in a situation where you can't access testing or you pers- perhaps you decline testing, one thing you can do is look for a sperm donor that's already had extensive testing done and pick a donor. That's not a carrier. Uh, once a donor is identified as a carrier, now you're in a position of having to reflex back to yourself and make sure you're tested negative reflex back to yourself and make sure, uh, you're tested negative for that gene, because now you would, you know, you want to be able to take any red flag, address it and make sure it's a non-issue before you conceive. So genetic testing is, um, can be offered. If it's accepted, it should be done before a pregnancy. And once you identify a risk, Mm -hmm. if someone's a carrier, the other partner needs to be tested negative before you proceed with the pregnancy. And the final thing I wanted to say is if you do these expanded panels, um, we actually expect almost 90% of people to be a carrier for at least one condition. So the testing is likely going to identify something and Mm -hmm. therefore you shouldn't be surprised. We're all carriers. When we test all 20,000, we'll find out we're a carrier for for probably a dozen or more genes. So being a carrier is a healthy situation. Um, But the the thing you need to worry about is if you and the sperm source are a carrier for the same thing, all of a sudden you're in a high-risk situation. We're just trying to identify those people to help them make the right choices.
0: Now, if you are a carrier, let's say for one of these genetic diseases or conditions, what is the likelihood? If my partner or donor isn't, what is the likelihood that my child does get this through my DNA?
1: Or my. So you're, DNA. you're saying like you, you're a carrier, but we don't know if the donor, if we the, donor if the donor
0: isn't, if the donor isn't, because then there's still a chance,
1: right? So, you know, if the donor has been tested, and he's negative, it yes. reduces risk, it does not eliminate risk. So your point is valid. It, it okay. really takes the situation and brings us as close to zero as we can get given the, the limitations of technology. You know, none of the testing has a 100% detection rate. Right. Um, and as the science evolves, we will get closer to that. But right now, a negative result reduces risk, but it doesn't eliminate risk. Now, the other scenario is you're a carrier and the donor hasn't been tested. Right. His risk to be a carrier is dependent on a number of things. What gene is it? Some genes are much more frequent than others. For instance, cystic fibrosis, about 4% of the population is a carrier. So that's considered a high frequency. And then there are some genes that have like a one in 500 chance of being a carrier, exceptionally rare diseases. So it matters which gene. And then it also matters, uh, ethnicity matters. So there are some genes that are more common in Caucasians, some that are more common in other ethnicities. So we take all that together. I have that ability to kind of churn through those numbers and and do those risk estimates. And that can sometimes help people decide, is this a good match for me? Should I proceed? Should I do the testing? Should I not do the testing? Um, So that they can make a more informed choice on what their next steps should be.
0: Wow. Okay. I mean, that's a lot of information. I know. I know. How. No, that's it's so it's good to know because I, you know, when you go into this, when you first think of this idea, hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go down this fertility road on my own. There's so many things that you don't think about, right? It's I'm gonna have a baby, and then there's like, okay, wait, I got to do this. I got to test for this. What is yeah. the risk for this? And you can kind of get incredibly overwhelmed. But yes. when you think of it from a positive standpoint, it's a beautiful thing that we have this readily available to us if we should choose to seek it out, right? So I think I just want to recommend it to everybody. Like, hey, why not get ahead of a possible issue and get it done?
1: What's the harm? And the planning is important here because this is something you need to think about before you conceive. And it can take a while to get it set up. You know, there are some countries where it's not as accessible, so you may have to work a little bit harder to get access. Mm -hmm. Uh, Insurance typically covers it in the United States, but it also, um, you know, may cost more if you're abroad. Uh, Mm -hmm. Results can take two to three weeks, possibly more to come back. Then you get those results. And then you need to think about, oh, now what's happening on the other side? Has the sperm donor been tested. Do we need to test him? Is he not tested for what I'm a carrier for? This is the only donor I want. If you want to do testing on the sperm donor, that can add another month, more expense. And really all this needs to be done before you do your first procedure. So you're going to have to add that timeline in. Uh, I do have people contacting me already pregnant who have uh, had carrier testing done while they were pregnant, found out they were a carrier, used a sperm donor that had not been tested. And now everybody is incredibly anxious until those testing results on the donor come back negative. And it can take us, you know, a month to get to a place where someone can, can, you know, release that worry. Um, you know, and the goal is really to reduce the risk of having a child with with a serious genetic disease, no matter how much testing we do or how healthy we are, or how, you know, our lifestyle choices, we do everything right. You know, there are still, unfortunately, these random things that can happen, but this is what we have some control over to reduce Mm -hmm. our risk as much as possible.
0: And well, that's it. If we have this available to us, why not take advantage for sure? Right. Um, that kind of leads into, because I get a lot of choice moms or women that are considering this journey, that'll reach out to me and say, you know, I think I want to do this. Maybe, you know, I was talking to this guy and, you know, it's kind of going well, but what if it doesn't work out? Like, what are my options? I'm getting a little bit older. You know, what should I do to kind of secure myself for my future self? Right. Um, And I always say like, listen, go to your fertility clinic. Why not get ahead of it speak to the people that know the the people that can do your specific testing, your blood work, your, you know, see where you're at, right. With your fertility and make a wise choice an educated choice. Once you've spoken to the experts. Um, and I always say it, please just make an appointment because they know. And that's another thing too, is that you can do your genetic testing and you can find out a little bit more about conditions you may have and be able to look at it from an educated standpoint. So I think you probably agree with that to, you know, get yourself ahead of the game a little bit.
1: Right. All of it takes time. I mean, those fertility workups take time and then there may be, uh, an urgency to get underway if you've got right. some of your values aren't where you wanted them to be and then all of a sudden you're you don't have those months and months to plan so the genetic testing i will say does improve every few years so a test you may have had 4 or 5 years ago likely should be updated if you're on that journey of trying to do the genetic screening to reduce risk but if it's within a year or so there's no reason not to do it uh, in the united states there are options for people literally to order it themselves, direct to consumer. So you can go online. There's a company called invite.com where you can order it online and um, they send you the results. They have genetic counselors there to discuss carrier results with you. So it's becoming much more accessible. Um, I don't believe they charge more than $250, uh, even without insurance. So it's it's valuable information at a reasonable price. And it comes back in about three weeks time um and then if you wanted your partner tested or uh, or a directed donor or you know we would work on getting a sperm donor tested if necessary um you know all that testing is readily available
0: oh wow i mean that's that's really great so again get ahead of it yeah I recommend it to the listeners if you're considering it just set yourself up for success for the future it doesn't have to mean that you're having a baby tomorrow I think that's what right. freaks people out. They're like, yeah, but if I go, that means that I'm doing it. And it's like, no, 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 It's it could take years even. So starting today just kind of secures yourself. Um, okay, so that's really interesting. Now, another thing that I am completely just oblivious, I don't even know what it means, um, that people asked me was, they wanted to know everything about epigenetics versus genetics. Like that is another language. I don't even understand what that means. So if you could... Well, you
1: know, it's it's an interesting concept, and there it's it's a it's a theoretical concept. We can't really oh. measure it by testing, but okay. what they've found is is that you know we inherit our genes from our parents, okay. and those genes are in us when we're embryos, when we're fetuses, when we're babies, but that is often influenced. Uh, how those genes are expressed as we grow are influenced by the environment around us. It could be something as significant as the mother who carries you had a traumatic event. They've done studies of um, women that were pregnant during hurricanes or big uh, weather events that, you know, where they lost their homes and it was a lot of trauma and that affected how the children developed after they were born, that there was some kind of influence of that pregnancy on fetal development, which then influenced how those kids turned out developmentally. Um, So and our nutrition, you know, think about, we uh, might inherit a predisposition to diabetes because, you know, the clusters and families, right. but our lifestyle choices um, affect whether that predisposition becomes a disease. So if let's say your parents or one of your parents has insulin dependent diabetes, then you need to have in your mind that there is diet, weight, exercise are going to reduce your risk that's your ability to influence your environment and whether or not those genes are going to express that disease. So, um, you know, we just, some of these things are out of our control, you know, living through a hurricane, you know, uh, what, what our mothers, you know, us, what happened to our mothers when they were carrying us, you know, we can't control that. Um, You know, it it also kind of think about intelligence. I mean, people think intelligence is, quote unquote, hereditary. Well, it has a genetic component, but so much of it is influenced by the culture we grow up in, how much we're nurtured and uh, how much we are involved in reading and activities and stimulation. So, you know, genes only go so far only so far so epigenetic epigenetics is really the ability of external things to influence how our genes are expressed and they're oh, coming God. up with new things all the time it's That's fascinating it's sometimes it's discouraging um, because <laughs> you read about this study or that study and um, but it is fascinating to think that we can uh, control uh, through some of our good life choices our right. genetic risk think of cancer and the diet choices that we right. make um, colon cancer, you know, it, it, there are certain things that you can do to reduce your risk, especially if there's a family history.
0: Wow. See that, I was going to ask you, I have it circled here on the notepad. Cause you said, um, I think it was cystic fibrosis. You said as a 4%. Yeah.
1: One in 25 people are carriers for cystic fibrosis.
0: Okay. So now like if you had, I don't think cystic fibrosis is affected by diet, but I'm just going right. to excuse my ignorance for a second. Is there some, Uh, like you said, cancers or other genetic uh, diseases or issues that can be affected by epigenetics, I think is what it's called, Um, like, and our lifestyle factors, is there, like, let's say um, there's a 25% chance because the donor and I are carriers of this, whatever issue, as the child, if they take care of themselves, is there a chance that they could avoid this issue? I guess is what I'm trying to say, if that makes sense. Well,
1: well it does. I mean, there are, um, there's
0: factors, right?
1: Well, there, there, when you have a genetic disease that's caused by a specific gene that's been studied and you know that there's a variant within that gene that breaks the gene and that gene can no longer function the oh, okay. way it's intended to in the body. Okay. With cystic fibrosis, a certain enzyme isn't created. For other diseases, it's a pathway, a metabolic pathway that's not working. So you can't really correct that once it's broken, especially when it's in every cell of your body. So it, uh, so when you know the genetic disease, it can be studied. There's a specific variant that breaks the gene. You now don't have the ability to correct it just through through epigenetics or through influencing the environment. I mean, there are treatment options, but we're really talking about theoretical diseases that really don't have genetic tests. They're just predispositions, things that are interesting associations that we know make people turn out differently because they've had a different kind of exposure that may be lifestyle choices or something that maybe your mother underwent while she was pregnant there it's, it's, it's kind of like studying a population to say, okay, this group was exposed. This group wasn't, how did they turn out? But it's not that we can go back and actually do genetic testing. So it's, that's more theoretical epigenetics. Whereas when you have a genetic disease, you can't make it go away because every cell in the body has that error and it, and it can't be corrected. Um, you know, that's where stems, cell therapy comes in where you're hopeful that you can use a corrected tissue and put it back in the body and let the body start creating whatever is missing through your genetic um, disease that you have. But it's very much experimental. uh, In cystic fibrosis, for example, they can uh, have children inhale a, a product that can correct some of the deficiencies in the lungs, where a lot of the disease exhibits, but it doesn't cure the disease, it may reduce symptoms for a short period of time. But there are many diseases where you just simply can't get into the brain or the liver, you can't go where the defect is expressed. And so cures are really few and far between when it comes to genetic disease.
0: Now, is this, um, this is another thing, I don't know if you know I don't know and if you don't we can just skip over it but it's um for us in Canada that's why you may not have information about it we are not tested like I said for these genetic things unless you I guess ask for it um but is are these tests done during pregnancy if they weren't done like are you tested for a wide array of things is that a standard thing or not really
1: So usually we let um, most people who are healthy and don't have any increased risk factors start a pregnancy. And then we see how things are going. Um, There is a blood test that can be done that's non-invasive. It doesn't go into anything that's baby related, but it's a blood test on you and it can look for increased risk factors that might indicate that something could go wrong and let's do some additional testing. Okay. So, um, so there's that blood test that can be done. And if there are some increased risk factors, they can look at the baby more carefully. Um, there's something called amniocentesis and chorionic villus sampling. Those are usually done in pregnancy, anywhere from like 10 to 15 weeks, but they're typically done on women who there's a risk factor identified and we want more information because those are invasive. They involve using a needle to take either part of the placenta or some fluid from around the baby to okay. do an analysis, looking for things like Down syndrome. Right. And those are things um, that may be associated with advancing maternal age, uh, okay. women over the age of 35 or at greater risk, but you're not going to do the tests that are... That um, that could carry a small risk for miscarriage unless there's some things that are going on earlier in the pregnancy that identify that there's need to investigate. So okay, t- I they're know not routine, he- they're not routine. Those invasive tests aren't routine, but there is some screening that you do. You know, you're having those ultrasounds done early. You're right. doing measurements. You're doing. Um, you know, this blood test to look for increased risks for neural tube defects and chromosome abnormalities on your blood. So there are some of the routine tests that they're doing.
0: Okay. So some of the the routine blood tests will give information if there is some kind of really standout genetic issue, they'll be able to find it in your pregnancy.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's limited to a group of, of disorders um, that don't include those big panels, those like 500 diseases. That's a different right. type of test. Okay. Now, when you're doing the blood work that I was talking about in pregnancy, they're looking for things for chromosome abnormalities. So those are the sporadic events that are not hereditary typically. And they're whole chromosomes that have kind of snuck into cells where they're not supposed to be. Um, mm-hmm. that's a whole chromosome structure. That's array. That's that's gone awry, but okay. It's not going to give you information on, let's say, cystic fibrosis. It's not going to. Oh wow! You know, once you're, unless there's a risk factor, let's say you you become pregnant, um, and then you discover you're a carrier for cystic fibrosis, and then you discover the sperm source is a carrier for cystic fibrosis. Now that's a high risk pregnancy, twenty five percent risk. Now they might offer you prenatal testing for you to know ahead of time. Now some people may decide. Whatever comes is fine. I'm not going to do the testing, but that option is available to do the testing and find out early in pregnancy, what the results are. But but usually they're waiting for, for there to be significant risk factors before they do that. So there's not really a test you can do once you're pregnant to give you all those answers. That's why that carrier screening should ideally be done before pregnancy, Because once you do it after you're pregnant, they're still just testing you. They're not testing the baby, they're testing you. And now we still have to figure out if you have a risk, what's the donor's risk? Then once the two of you are confirmed as carriers, then we can test the baby. This can take multiple weeks to worry about.
0: Let's take a quick break to talk about single mom mindset, the ultimate course for choice mothers, women that are considering this journey, and for those that are already on this path. It will take you from literally A to Z on your journey, and that is finding out what your options are, finding support along the way, budgeting, how you're going to manage work life and family life, childcare, care, um, you name it, navigating tough conversations with loved ones and your support system. There is so much inside of Single Mom Mindset, the course, so If this is the journey for you, and if you're deciding if this is the journey for you, I recommend hopping into the course right now. All the details will be linked below in the show notes. So check it out today. You won't regret it. Now, um, can you go into a little bit about what the donors, like the process for the donor, the testing that they go through nowadays? I don't know if things, I'm sure things have changed, but what is it like in a 2023 I'm here to be a sperm donor. What am I going through? What is this like? We don't need to get into the graphic stuff. No, I don't know. No. Just, what is it like for them?
1: <laughs> well, you know, they apply and they have to provide us a lot of information about their own medical health, but also their family's medical history. So they have to be able to go through all four of their grandparents, their parents, their aunts and uncles, their siblings, uh, and let us know about their Uh, health history. That's important. Um, We then uh, ask them questions about their own medical health, and then they have physicals done as well to make sure they are healthy. Then they're obviously going through rigorous uh, blood testing for screening for infectious disease. That here in the United States is required by the FDA. We want to make sure that any uh, sperm product that is goes out the door is, is not contagious. Yeah. So they're doing uh, a series of infectious disease testing um, to make sure the donors are negative and that testing is done throughout his donation cycle on a regular basis and before vials are cleared for sale that he has another panel done so this is they are monitored for infectious disease throughout um, they also will go through um, uh, what we call an expanded panel of genetic testing it's 514 genes now and those results come back uh, they're reviewed by myself and our medical director who's a geneticist a clinical geneticist and we tag anyone that we feel um it would not be a good candidate, you know, for, for being a donor. So we do exclude exclude some donors based on their testing and based on their physical exam, um, based on their medical history. If he was born with a birth defect, let's say he had a cleft lip or a heart defect, he's excluded. If there's too much genetic uh, family history of concern, he's going to be excluded. Uh, anything that's going to increase the risk for a child of that donor. To have a genetic inherited disease, is going to exclude the donor. So we go through this, you know, physical uh, m- uh, blood work, uh, his semen analysis. You know, m- many of the donors don't pass their semen analysis test. They have to have a certain quantity uh, and it has to be, you know, modal. It has to look like it's supposed to look um, right. in order for those semen vials to be, you know, a high risk of uh, creating a pregnancy. So we screen them for health, for family history, and for semen quality. Uh, They go through that rigorous screening protocol over a series of months. Um, They also have a psychological assessment that is scored by a psychologist, uh, psychological um, inventory done, looking for things like bipolar, schizophrenia, depression, uh, anxiety, um, and, and we're going to exclude donors that don't Pass that test. Um, And so we want to make sure the donors that are available have been rigorously screened, are healthy, and increase the chance of healthy children being born from their sperm. Um, Donors go through this process. the, The semen vials are collected. Then they have to stay in quarantine for six months, which is a requirement here in the United States, be retested for their entire uh, panel of infectious disease testing and be negative, then those vials can be released for sale. And so a donor will typically produce donations anywhere from six months to a year, uh, create whatever vial he does, and then you know, we'll, we'll sell until they sell out. Donors can sell out in weeks, months, rarely years. I mean, it can be a pretty short window from oh, wow. when the vials are available to when the donors are, are sold out.
0: Wow. Um, well, that kind of it leads me into two different things. So one is, um, let's say in my case with Leo's donor, um, I don't have any other vials. I don't have frozen embryos. I don't have anything. Now, let's say I would like to have another child using the same donor. Right. Um, like if once they're out, they're out. Are you able to call this donor back to give more samples or how does that work?
1: Uh, Usually once a donor sells out, he's out. The only vials we'll ever see again are ones that are returned to us from people that have completed their families and decided to to sell those vials back to us. Um, but that's a rare occurrence. Um, once a donor leaves the program, in order for him to, to be back in the program, producing vials again, he has to start from the very beginning and it will um, he has to go through that entire screening process again, create vials, wait another six months, to release. We do have what we call a donor reactivation program. If a donor is willing to go through that entire process again, and the client who's requesting it is willing to pay, and I want to say the price tag starts at three to $5,000, okay. um, you can create a, a small group of vials that can be for you. The solution to this is to buy all the vials you think you need to create as many babies as you're planning to have. And if there are vials left over at the end of of your family completion you can sell those vials back wow. you know it depends on what kind of infertility procedure you're having done if you're having an insemination you know a typical uh success rate with an insemination is 18 to 20% per cycle. So, you know, you don't get pregnant every single time you do an insemination. And sometimes people buy one vial and they equate to, to one baby and often the, the numbers don't bear that out. So if someone has picked a donor and you know, picking a donor is no easy task, people will agonize over this and really consider it careful. It's an important choice and it can take them weeks to, to narrow down. A donor that they like. And once they've done that, to then find out that one vial, one attempt didn't work, they come back, the donor sold out is so discouraging, they have to start all over again. So, you know, the recommendation is really to kind of buy what you need.
0: Mm-hmm. And then
1: you've made your donor selection, and you don't have to come back or contemplate having to use a second donor for your second child, which is also you know, wasn't part of the plan, you wanted a full sibling. So And we don't give preference to people who've already had children. That was your original question. If there's a vial available, it's first come first serve. So it doesn't matter whether or not you've had a child or not. So that's important too. you know, um, Uh, There are some donors that have met their family limits. And then if a vial becomes available, we only allow it to be purchased by someone who already has a family by that donor. But there aren't that many of those donors, you know, I think
0: that might be what I what I was thinking is what you just said, that it's reserved for people that have already had a successful pregnancy. Yeah. It but been- it, it,
1: it, It's still first come first serve. You of know, course. it's, it's uh, uh, you've probably noticed how quickly donors are selling out or how quickly they they're up. And then all of a sudden there are no vials and there's like a wait list yeah. or a notification list, we call it. And it's been incredibly frustrating for families. Absolutely. So when you find that donor and he has availability, you know, make your decisions as quickly as you can, uh, because it does get frustrating for people.
0: Oh, that it leads me again to so many things. Cause A happened to me. It was like, oh my God, the uh, corner's uh, perfect. Let's do it. And it was like, what? He sold out. Oh no. And it's like, i to start over. It's so hard and you get so invested, right? This is perfect. It's going to work. And then I had the one, the one IUI didn't work. And it was like, oh, I was sure I'm going to buy one yeah, vial. Yeah, I'm going to go in when that. I'm ovulating and I'm going to be pregnant. It's just going to be a snap of the fingers. And it was like, that's not the way it works. And that's another thing that I tell people. That's why you've got to just. Get going because it could be a lengthy yes. process. Um, okay, but that also leads me to um there's actually one mom that is, I believe she's pregnant now. Um, she has embryos. Okay. And she's like, uh, no, sorry. She all she has uh a vial or two, I believe, of sperm that she's purchased that and she also has an embryo. Okay. I believe I might I might be getting it wrong. I'm sorry if I am, but she's curious if. She should sell back the sperm because now she's pregnant. She thinks she's going to have another one. But if she does, if she has the embryo or embryos, what is your advice?
1: Well, you know, it's that vial is an insurance policy for her for if something were not to work out as planned with those other embryos, she -hmm. still has that vial to give her options. If she sells the vial back um, and then she runs out of options, she may not be able to buy that vial back because it'll be gone. So right. it's an insurance policy. And here at Fairfax Cryobank, you can actually sell a vial back whenever you want. 10 years from now, 20 years from now, there's no limit. Oh, wow. Okay. So it becomes, yeah. um, uh, in, 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 you know, I know there are storage fees every month. It's about $40 a month. But I, I do think... Um, if she's trying to keep her options open, once she really has completed her family, I think that's the point at which you can say, okay, you know, I can, if there are embryos left, she can consider donating them. If there are vials left, you consider reselling them back to the sperm bank. So I do think that, uh, keeping options open, um, is important, especially when you're th- talking about trying to have full siblings.
0: Okay, perfect. So you heard it here. Okay. Keep it now. <laughs> a lot of people have been asking me what is up with the delays and it's not just with you guys. It's just, there's a lot of delays. And I assumed COVID. I don't know. I'm assuming that that's what it would be. Um, and there seems to be just a short supply. I don't know if that's how it's always been. Is there something that's going on?
1: Are things going to be changing? Can you touch on
0: that a little bit? Well,
1: I, we certainly recognize that, um, The demand is up. There is no doubt about it. So so there are more people looking to use donor than ever before. Oh, really? Uh, Okay. You know, our clients are made up of uh, forty percent are single women. uh, Really. Forty percent. single women.
0: Forty percent. Okay. I love that you said that. Okay. Sorry.
1: Forty percent are in a same-sex relationship, and about twenty percent are hetero couples, usually with an infertility factor. So. You know, now you have to, I, I think there is, as society is. I think, accepted families that are a little non-traditional. nontraditional. Um, I think people are planning for this, where maybe 10 years ago they were much more secretive and maybe discouraged from doing it. So I, I definitely see demand is up. Um, we are definitely... Uh, expanding as quickly as we can. We've opened up a new lab in Miami to recruit and we're always looking for new locations. I will say um, it's a slow process because even a donor that applies today, it will be probably close to a year before his files will be available. So COVID certainly had an impact and it wasn't a momentary impact. Certainly at the time, the donors weren't able to come in and donate um, and that did slow down. The donors that were in the program, but we also delayed getting new donors into the program. And, you know, the goal is to try and keep up, um, but it is, it's a, it's a large commitment to recruit donors. You know, we get a hundred applications and one acceptance because they fall out for some reason, whether it's semen quality or family history, or they don't know Uh, everything about their grandparents, you know, they'll fall out of the program and we can't accept them. So it's harder. We also are only accepting ID donors. So donors that are willing to be known. And if they, now this wasn't the case 20 years ago, but now they don't have a choice. They have to be willing to be an ID donor. And for some, it's just not a commitment they're willing to make. And so they'll select themselves out of the application process. So it's just a, 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 a bigger ask of us for the donors. Right. Um, and you've probably, and I think one final thing I'll mention is that, you know, over the decades where they've been studying semen quality in the general population, they've noticed a decline in sperm counts over the decades. Oh, wow. Okay. So when you have a reduction in sperm counts, you can imagine that, uh, a single ejaculate is going to create fewer opportunities. So the donors that we had 20 years ago versus the donors we have today who are healthy men, they've just also been part of the same phenomenon of decreasing sperm count. So it means that many of the donors that apply aren't meeting our standards either. So there's, um, you know, we're only accepting the donors that have the quality and the quantity that we want, which again, makes our pool even smaller. Um, It's just hard to get the right donors into the program. They have to meet so many rigorous criteria. Um, we do put up over hundred donors a year, um, but it's it's hard because um, there there's more demand than we can than, than than we can supply. I mean,
0: I feel like that's a really beautiful, amazing thing, though. If we really look at it, there are families that are being made in such a different way now, and it's becoming more and more normal and acceptable and praised and celebrated and I think that alone is fantastic and I'm so here for it for all the families um and also that you guys are really putting them through the test I think that's a great thing it sucks that you have to wait a little bit maybe sure but at the end of it I personally much prefer to wait if it means that I'm getting quality stuff right and my child will be healthy and whatever right so
1: Well, the waiting can be tough, because let's say you're in your late 30s, and you're really on a timeline, and you have a donor picked out you really like, but Mm -hmm. there is a limit to how long you can wait, you know, and so we always suggest that people have choice one, choice two, choice three, and they start considering, okay, if this doesn't happen on this timeline, where do I go next, so that they feel like they have a plan. So Mm -hmm. my first choice donor may not be available but my second choice donor may become available sooner. They're on these notification lists. And so they kind of come up with the, if A, then B, then C option, because you may not be able to wait six or eight months uh, for a vial to become available. I mean, it's usually not that long, but still it's every week counts when you're trying to get your cycle started and you're trying to have a baby. I do think too, COVID made people realize um, how much they wanted a baby. I think that people... You know, we see people really um, pursuing it much more. You know, with much more enthusiasm since COVID than before. It's like they okay, something's missing. I want that baby. Yeah. Now.
0: Well, oh. we lived through something that it was like, hey, there's nothing guaranteed about this life. Like, I I want a family, and maybe I don't have a husband or whatever. You're right, 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 like from right. this community. Like, we want a family, and we're gonna just. Do it, like why not? And I think just everyone sharing their stories and really becoming more public about it really empowered one another, which is
1: yeah. awesome. So when yeah. you spend and you and if you're unattached and you're looking for that right person and you had to spend two years not dating because you yeah. meet strangers, I mean yeah. it just messed up
0: a lot of plans. <laughs> That is all for this episode, but come back next week for part two. This was a really great conversation and we covered so much. So I had to make it a part two. I'm so sorry, Um, but you're going to love it. And we cover so much more in the next episode. So we'll see you then. And I just want to remind you to check out all of the amazing resources all linked below in the show notes, as well as over on Instagram if you're not already following me you can follow me at Candice Catherine that's C-A-N-D-I-C-E K-A-T-H-E-R-I-N-E on Instagram. And that's where you can get so many resources, free resources. And again, at the link below. Um, And I forgot to mention before, we are actually doing a new workshop that starts on Monday and it is called Unruly Mom Talk. You don't want to miss it. Again, if you're considering this journey, already on this journey, literally anybody, any mom, uh, and choice mom that is thinking about this or is already living this life is going to benefit from the mom talk. So I'll see you there. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. Make sure you subscribe, leave a review and come back next Thursday for an all new episode. Bye.